This episode is sponsored by yet another great company that I use and endorse, and that is Bubs Naturals. Now, they are offering you guys a discount on your first purchase with them, and I will get to that in a moment, but I really want to tell you the history of Bubs. Bubs was a call sign of Glenn Doherty, one of the courageous Navy SEALs that died in Benghazi, and his best friend, Sean Lake, co-founded Bubs Naturals not only to bring wellness solutions to the community, but to take 10% of the profits and donate to charities in Glenn's name. So I first came across their collagen through Jeff Nichols and had no preconceived notions or biases, but I started to witness in myself, my nails grow faster, my hair get thicker and longer, my skin, I've got very dry skin and it usually cracks in the winter, that has not happened this year. My joints, the aching, the kind of inflammation has definitely subsided. And then what really blew me away was actually my gut health. I saw that improve. And when you think about the gut is 80% of your immune system, that is incredibly pertinent. They have the apple cider vinegar gummies. I also take those. And then the MCT oil in a powder form has allowed me to put creamer back in my coffee after swearing off dairy for years. But when I have this creamer, it's adding energy, it's adding mental focus, so yet it's another supplement. Now, as far as efficacy, they're the only collagen that is 100% NSF for sports certified and Whole30 approved. So as I mentioned, the discount code. They are offering you 20% off a one-time purchase by using the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear the full story behind Bubs Naturals, and the courage of Glenn Doherty. Listen to my interview with Glenn's best friend and Bub's co-founder, Sean Lake, on episode 558 of the Behind the Shield podcast. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. 
And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 615 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Nick Wilson. Now, Nick is a retired law enforcement officer and also the man behind the Resiliency Project. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into policing, the injury that forced his retirement, mental health, addiction, organizational stress, and the Ben Darby case. Now, this is going to be going out on Tuesday. The following episode will be Keelan Darby, Ben's wife. So I urge you to not only listen to Nick's story, but also listen to him discuss Ben's case, which will be a great adjunct to when Keelan comes on on Thursday. Now, before I get to this amazing interview, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 600 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Nick Wilson. Enjoy. Well, Nick, I want to start by saying, firstly, this is a long time coming. And secondly, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast one week before you get married. Thank you so much for that. And I, uh, I'm i very grateful to be with you, James. Uh, I've long admired your work, and I think you're doing amazing things for the first responder community. So thank you. And I just bought your book, so I can't wait to read it. Beautiful. I'm excited to hear your your thoughts. And also, I mean, you're doing incredible things. And it sounds like, you know, massaging each other's egos, but it's not. There's there's a lot of people out there, a lot, I'm sure many of whom listen to to this podcast, you know, follow you on in the Resilience Project. But um, all those people are trying to just be part of the mosaic that is the solution. So I think, you know, when you meet a kindred spirit, someone who, especially who's transitioned out of this profession, but still cares enough to fight for them, then I think that's admirable. Yeah. Like we always say, right, it takes a village and we, I don't think, uh, will be as successful in trying to effectuate change without everyone working together and uh, trying to do the right things for the right reasons. Absolutely. So, opening question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Well, so I'm in uh, California, right outside of LA, and uh, still trying to make adjustments to the political climate and what's happening to our state, but trying to uh, find the good and staying grateful every day. So, with that, obviously, I'm sitting here in Florida, so our states are pretty much polar opposite when it comes to what we've seen the last couple of years without delving into politics and all that stuff there was seemed to be a mass exodus we saw a lot of people that i respected very you know greatly move away from that area but i've seen other people go back to la um who i respect as well so are there any encouraging signs coming out of that for people looking into la from the outside i guess it um it depends really on um you know, how you view things and what, what, um, 
what's important to you in life. I think that right now in California, we are in the middle of a lot of uh, divisive type of um, stuff. We're seeing laws change. We're seeing things like SB2, um, which is the decertification process in California that's going to make law enforcement almost impossible to do. Um, and we're still dealing with a lot of the, um, the mandate stuff that keeps popping up. And it doesn't seem like it's um, affecting most other parts of the country. So I think uh, we're in a strange place in California in terms of the first responder community and the changes that are occurring uh, with our first responders. So it's going to it's going to start changing things dramatically. And I just hope that more of us can work together to try to be part of the solution rather than um, just allowing these things to happen without trying to put up a fight, especially through our unions, associations, and police officer associations. Yeah, I have to say it was very disappointing seeing the mandates. And again, I've said for two years now, my whole fight and focus has been wellness, underlying health, because now COVID has pretty much come and gone and I'm still watching people die of obesity. I just went on a cruise and heartbreaking, mate, heartbreaking to see the ill health of the average American, you know, that no one's talking about now, you know, oh, we're good with that. Now let's talk about Johnny Depp's divorce, you know, let's move on. But, um, you know, the, the mandates were horrendous and I was proud to be in Florida and, you know, see our government push back against it, you know, and I don't have any leaning left or right. I'm, I'm a humanitarian. Whoever's doing the right thing, I will lean towards. And that usually is in the middle, but, um, I think the mandates were horrendous, but also the challenges from the law enforcement perspective. Again, there's been, a wide spectrum here you know i see job opportunities opening up in florida and incentives to move out of state to florida um but you're talking about sv2 so educate us myself included on what that is and how that looks like you know what what the ripple effect would be for our law enforcement men and women yeah um so i'm still trying to uh get my head around it i'm trying to you know, understand the complexity of it. And I think so is the state. I think that this is something that um, really it doesn't make much sense. But essentially, uh, there is now SB2 has passed. And I think it's uh, January 1st is when everything goes into effect. They're going to uh, make it so that every single IA investigation, whether it is sustained or not sustained, has to be reported to POST, which is the Peace Officers uh, Standards uh, and Training, which is what certifies law enforcement officers. The governor is appointing a board, an advisory board that consists of uh, a couple of law enforcement members, but then also family members that have been, according to them, um, victims of unjust type of things with law enforcement or have had family members killed by law enforcement officers. Uh, Peace Officers Bill of Rights or POBAR uh, does not really um, count anymore. Uh, They're going to basically circumvent POBAR. It goes so deep that uh, they're going to go back retroactively. There's going to be thousands of police officers that are affected by this and there's no appeal process. There's no checks and balances, really, um, to my understanding. I just heard 
two videos that were sent to me by uh, actually Matt Degas, who used to work at La Mesa Police Department. And I was really shocked at what I was hearing. So I can send those to you. But this is going to change, I think, the landscape of law enforcement from what I can see and what others are telling me in, in an environment that has already been deeply affected in the last two years because of all the calls for uh, reform, which um, I mean, there's no, there's no mistake about there being examples of past injustices. I just don't know that we can correct past injustices by creating an environment that makes law enforcement impossible to do by handcuffing them and creating an environment which causes them to not want to use force uh, to defend themselves or overcome resistance. And I think that, that we're on a very uh, dangerous playing field here. Yeah, I agree completely. I want to kind of unpack that a little bit, but I think we'll we'll kind of do the the timeline element first, and then when we get to it, we'll I'll, I'll kind of pose some questions to you related to that. So, with your own chronological journey, tell me where you were born, and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Awesome. Yeah. So I was born and raised in California. Uh, I have two younger brothers. I have not actually spoken to them since I retired. Um, my mother raised the three of us by herself. My birth father was from Germany, and uh, he landed in Ellis Island uh, when he was about 20. They met when uh, he came to California and was a restaurant manager, and she was a waitress when she was uh, about uh, 20 years old. So when he left my life when I was around 12 years old, uh, she, she raised us. She ended up getting remarried to a wonderful man. Uh, we moved to Northern California, which is where I became a police explorer. And when it came time to, uh, for me to go to the academy, they moved back to San Diego. And when I was 20, I went to the San Diego Police Academy, became a police officer. And uh, from San Diego, I lateral to an agency in Orange County, California, where I spent the rest of my career. And it was about 13 years of, of being a police officer. And I, I had an amazing career. I did everything I wanted to do. But because of the, um, the stigma, I allowed the fear of what others thought of me from um, getting the help I needed when the cumulative stress and trauma of the job really started affecting me and my life blew up and I lost everything. And I don't think that my story is unique. I think that this is a story that so many first responders deal with because of the stigma. Um, and this is typically a treatment adverse industry. And uh, it's no one else's fault but my own as to what happened. Um, but as a result of, of everything that happened, uh, my family disowned me and my two younger brothers uh, had stopped talking to me. And when I actually finally got help, they were encouraging me at that time uh, to take my own life. And that's what was the beginning of the end of our relationship. And I think that that was due by and large to them not knowing how to deal with their own trauma and or respond to what I was going through. So, so, so just to jump in for a second, I'm sorry, but to go all the way back, I think one thing, and correct me if, if this is different to how you've been perceived or you've experienced, but when I started this, it was my friends are overdosing, my friends are taking their own lives, we have an issue, you know, it's what we see. It, it was very... It was acknowledge the problem and trying to figure out what was going on. And the, the evolution, the metamorphosis of my own personal understanding of this issue has been 
profound and one of the glaring elephants in the room that is you hardly ever hear discussed is the impact of childhood trauma on an individual before they ever put the uniform on. So while we're on the subject of trauma, you, you talked about you know your father leaving when you were 12. When you look back, because you said that there was a shared experience with your siblings as well, what now with all this mental health knowledge that you have, what were some of the areas of your you know, adolescence or your early childhood that contributed to some of the struggles you had once you entered the profession? That's a great question. And I don't think I even thought about that till I started actually going through my own healing process, which, you know, I'll spend the rest of my life doing is just healing. And I think that um, the role of a mother and a father are so important to childhood, right? And in our most formative years, we look to our parents for safety and love and guidance and all that kind of stuff. And having my father leave was single-heartedly the most heartbreaking um, experience in my life. And I think that that void early on, um, you know, these things, childhood traumas, they stay in our mind, right? And, and um, sometimes we don't realize how much they affect us later in, in life. And I think that there is a direct correlation between the abandonment that I experienced from him and the feeling of abandonment in the profession later when I felt like um, maybe others didn't have my back when they should have, or uh, you become basically just a number that, and no one checks on you. You know, when you retire, you're basically, I mean, that's it. Um, you know, you don't get invited back, or at least I don't, um, back to the department or the you know station to, you know, for any of the events or anything. So you, you, there was this concept when I got into this profession, like this is a family, like law enforcement is a family. Right. And, um, you know, the mind is pretty fascinating when you think about what I was really looking for when I was young, I was looking to be part of something bigger than myself. And I believed in the nobility of the profession. And it was like a family, the family I didn't have. And so I think it hit me harder. Um, and I think others have experienced the same. So I think I've, I've really had to work through that and understand why the feeling of betrayal or organizational betrayal or abandonment plays such a, a deep um, role, at least in the mind, on mine, when um, I was going through everything I was going through, it hit me harder, you know? Now, what about your siblings? So when you look at that and this, this very kind of... Um, seemingly uncaring response to your own pain have you had any insight into how they dealt with that early part of their life yeah i think that we all all three of us we were so close you know and um i love them and i miss them but i think i think what happened was um you know we all deal with pain differently we all we all um experience pain and respond to pain differently and i think with them uh, their, their level of pain was so significant. Each of us are two years apart. I'm the oldest. And, um, you know, when we hurt, uh, sometimes that comes out in anger and, and rage. And, um, I think that the same was true for them and me being the oldest and then going down a path that no one ever believed I would go down, not even myself. I think it was 
for them, extremely painful. And they dealt with that the same way they they dealt with, uh, we all dealt with my father, which is anger. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's never too late. And hopefully one day we're able to kind of meet, reconcile and move forward. Um, but this has been now since 2017. And <clears throat> um, it's just, uh, I guess, an illustration or a reminder of how much childhood trauma and pain can affect us later in life and still hinder our growth and our ability to move forward and heal. Um, because you know as well as I do, and I've heard you talk about this, is that you know there's no magic pill, right? The best way to heal is through our community, our family, our social structures, um, and 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 healing becomes way more difficult without it. And I think even as first responders, sometimes you know maladaptive coping strategies take over, and we, without realizing it, push away our own family. And we isolate. We don't mean to do it, but we do. And that's the one thing that we need to heal. So we're pushing away the one thing that we need the most to be a, a better version of ourselves and get past our traumas. Yeah. See, I've had an interesting insight. We had, you know, growing up, I've, I've talked about this on the podcast, and you'll read it in the book. Like, we almost, three of us almost died in a house fire when I was four. My sister was eight. My little brother was, or my younger brother was a year and a half. So um, he doesn't have much of a recollection of it. But then we, there was another incident where a giant wall almost crushed us in the car and we just, <laughs> my dad hit the gas and it just missed us and crushed all these cars in the parking lot. And then moving further forward, my parents got a pretty awful divorce. And so there's, you know, there's elements of trauma in my family and there's five of us. And each of us literally lived different parts of the world. Like my sister went and worked on a cruise ship for many years. So did my, one of my brothers. Um, you know, one lives in Portugal, one lives in Germany for a while, one lives in France. So we just, you know, like exploded all over Europe. And so when we come back together, there's always this, literally this transition period where there'll always be two of us will, will grind against each other for a while. And then we'll sit down and we'll, we'll talk and the stories will come out and we'll analyze. But, we're talking about grown-ups who are in their 40s who are still really processing stuff that happened when we were in our early teens or you know late single figures so it's it's amazing and this is you know a group that was brought up with many of the the healthy coping mechanisms in place just purely by chance winning the the lottery as they say um but you know, yeah, so I've seen it in my own family and in myself, you know, I mean, and it's a constant thing. Then you add police or fire into it and then you've just, you know, amplified the shit show that was your human experience. It's crazy, right? We have, we have so much that um, we really, really recognize that we really don't have to suffer as much as we do um, if we can just accept the fact that um, – you know, if we look inward rather than point the finger and work on ourselves, um, it's sad to see how many broken families there, there are and how many broken families can't heal because we revert back to childhood, the things that we learned in childhood and um, hurt people, hurt people, you know, and uh, healing is a messy process as you and I have talked about in the past over the phone and um 
it, it really takes a collective effort, I think, because uh, we have we have a lot. This isn't just about suicide. It's about broken families and the breakdown of the family structure. And um, that's why I'm grateful to you, because these are the things that you talk about and you bring to light. And you normalize this conversation for others. Um, and it's critically important, I think. Well, I think for me, it was just after when I start this, like, 12 years in the fire service and then having an international lens and having multiple departments you start to see you know as i talk about all the time you, you get to pull the curtain back you see the wizard and you realize how much bullshit there is so just when you were talking it kind of um popped in my mind so when we had the war on drugs all the power was given to law enforcement ah we're gonna crush you know this is your this is your brain on drugs you know all this bullshit and then fast forward, you know, 20 years, why are our police all wearing, you know, tactical gear and why is this happening? And so now the blame has been taken away from the addict and now it's put on, on law enforcement. And the one conversation that unites both of those is what the fuck are we going to do with this mental health crisis that we found ourselves in? I think that, you know, really stems. And again, I'm learning this more and more from World War II. Because when I hear a lot of these multi-generational trauma stories, of course, it could go back even further. But a lot of it starts, my granddad came home from war. And then there was alcoholism. Then he was abusing his son, who was my dad, who then did this. And now here I am. You know, so then you have the audacity to say, oh, you know, the the, the, the hook of an, of a, an addiction is just a case of ownership. Just look yourself in the mirror one day and say, I'm not going to be an addict. I'm going to make a positive choice. I'm going to change. No, we know that doesn't work. And it's the same with the law enforcement. You know, we can't demonize them because we created this fucking mess. And we allowed the people who now, this last two years, has been blatantly obvious, many of whom have no fucking idea what leadership actually is. They'll go to, go to these, you know, conferences and pat each other on the back and give each other awards. And when called upon, they drop the fucking ball. So it's up to us, the Knicks and the Jameses and everyone else wearing uniform, working in the factory, whatever it is, to question everything and go, all right, this hasn't worked for X amount of decades. Maybe it's time we go back to the root source. Why are we creating so many criminals in the first place? Why are our streets so violent that our police have to look like they're about to go into Afghanistan? These are the questions that I do not hear anyone talking about with this whole law enforcement conversation at the moment. You're, you're spot on, right? Look, I mean, <clears throat> we, uh, our society continues to get more and more dangerous. Criminals are um, always going to be ahead of the game and more sophisticated. Law enforcement are always playing catch up. Um, but we've got, to your point, we have now a society that has basically handicapped our law enforcement officers. And I, when I'm talking about these things, make no mistake, there are people who tarnish the badge who do not deserve to wear the badge. The badge is a symbol of public faith. And those people have no room um, in this profession. But for all those who are doing their jobs, we have so many examples and have ha heard so many stories of, quote, leaders, right? Um, abandoning their officers because of external political pressures. And it's creating and exasperating um, so many issues in law enforcement. And I think that that 
perception of betrayal from command staff when this, when this happens is only making not just the job more difficult, but how about like community relations? Like you're talking about what you're talking about is, is so important. We have tried community oriented policing and problem solving since the eighties. Now we've got like tip a cop, coffee with a cop. We've got TikTok uh, cops dancing. We've got like, it's turned into a silly state of affairs. Well, what if we started really prioritizing mental health, making mental health the number one focus, since it's the number one threat to the first responder community, since more are dying by their own hands than the line of duty. If we had an environment that created an atmosphere with pathways towards healing and normalized the mental health conversation, don't you think that community, the communities would benefit by having healthy first responders not making mistakes or pissed off on stops or uh, having cops tired making mistakes? It's on camera. I don't think society would benefit from, from sick first responders. So we've not tried that and invested all of our resources into mental health, right? I mean, we're, we're expecting our cops to do an impossible job uh, while they're out there and, um, you're right. I mean, they go to FBI, uh, their, their leadership schools, they go to every, you know, SLI, they come back. And um, what's it really for? Is it a promotional thing or are they coming back as better leaders and really effectuating change? And I think that right now, if someone's going to promote or someone's going to be a union or POA president or you're going to be a member of command staff, you need to have political courage to do the right thing. You need, you need that because all of the adverse things that we're seeing has a direct causation on mental health. I did about a 20 minute video about two weeks ago and tried to post it. And I guess it was too long because I wasn't verified or whatever on Instagram. So I didn't go through it. It was probably a good idea. Everything I said in it was legitimate, but I don't know if I articulated it correctly and if it would be received well, but my point was this. I see a lot of people, when you talk about social media, and I want to get into a little epiphany I had on, on social media use and, you know, mental health in a little bit, but, um, I see people, oh, I you know, read this leadership book and this is, you know, this Navy SEAL or that, many of whom I had on the show and their books are amazing. And then I, you know, I go to this seminar, you know, I won this leadership award. And then I'm like, so take the fire service, for example. I've been seeing this for my whole career. So from when I started getting ready to go into this profession all the way through, so almost 20 years now. And yet I haven't heard one conversation about changing the way we work our firefighters. So you're beating your chest saying what a fucking amazing leader you are. But I still get the same response. Oh, but we can't do, we can't do that. When the most basal thing is that we are working our men and women into the ground, especially the last two years. I mean, I, I talk about this all the time for a reason, but the point is this discussions in the civilian world are going to a four day work week because they're seeing how effective it is on productivity and morale. And yet no one will question why, you know, firefighters, for example, are working 56, 72 hour work weeks. So you beat your chest and call yourself a leader when you can't, or union, and you can't even address the most basal thing that is the work week. There's a reason why we don't send our children up fucking chimneys anymore because one day someone said, this is fucking ridiculous. What are we doing? All our children are dying. Well, all our fucking first responders are dying and no one's got the balls to step up and say, as a collective profession, we need to change this now. 
So I'm sick and tired of seeing all this fucking rah-rah leadership bullshit when nothing is actually being done by a majority. There's some great leaders. I've had some on the show, but that's not the majority of people out there. You're spot on. Look what's happening. I mean, look, and there's actually, we can actually look at certain agencies as an example of this. We, you know, they, they talk about, you know, these leaders, so-called leaders. When I say leaders, it, it, that, that's a, that, um, managers, right, or command staff, right? That doesn't make them leaders, but for the purposes of the conversation, our leaders that we're looking up to, to hopefully, you know, change things or make, make working conditions better. They always talk about work-life balance and they, they use all the right words, but you're right. They're working them into the ground. Look at Indio Police Department. They've had a vote of no confidence in their chief and their POA is doing a great job by highlighting the mass exodus of officers and, and civilian staff leaving the department, creating um, a huge uh, shortage in personnel, which is man, where, where now they're mandating officers to do overtime. So they're working them into the ground with already uh, an existing contentious department where everyone's walking on eggshells the same is with true of azusa police department the azusa police department they're losing cops they've got multiple that have filed post-traumatic stress claims they've got a bit of voting no confidence on their captain their last chief then the current interim chief is creating a huge issue um look at uh i mean lapd and how many overtime i mean it's just like we go on and on look at san diego pd i mean they're uh, right now just on fire and their union is doing the, the best that they can to try to highlight the working conditions there. But what are we doing? We're not doing the most that we can to make the job at least a little bit easier to do. We're making it even more complicated. And while this is happening, society and or media or these leaders continue pointing the, the finger at our first responders. And uh, I'm sorry, but that's just not leadership at all. Well, I saw the same, and I talked about this right from day one in the UK. You know, when we had this this COVID epidemic sweep through, and so many people were absolutely justified to be very, very cautious at the beginning. What happened after that, obviously, is is up to everyone's particular lens of this last year and a half. But I saw the NHS, who I've talked about lovingly from the moment I picked up this microphone, because I think when funded well, it is the ultimate healthcare system. You as a country band together and say, we will take care of our, our weak and our injured and our, our young and our elderly. And if we have that ethos, therefore drive to make as healthy a community as we can. Now, is that what happens in the UK at the moment? No. And there's obviously elements that aren't, you know, they're working towards privatization. They're pushing towards our fucking broken model here in the US. But when COVID swept through, they told the British people, stand outside and, and clap. Does does that bring more doctors and nurses into the, the wars? Does that create more beds? Does that create more PPE arriving in the warehouse in the back? No. You Again, you put all the responsibility on the responder. Good job. We're proud of you. All right, I'm going to go back in and watch, you know, Coronation Street now. Good luck. You know, so it, it was, it's nauseating because I see that in the first responder profession too, but it's true. 
It's always on us. These mandates. Oh, we're doing it. You know, how dare you, selfish firefighter? You know, who we applauded in 9-11, but we're, we're, we're moving on now. You selfish, you know, FDNY paramedic. How dare you not take the vaccination? You're fired. Oh, the rest of you, by the way, you have to fill in those shifts now. You know, it's, it's, that's what's happening in all these different fields and it's nauseating. And it's, and it, it becomes laughable for me. And because it's extremely frustrating um, for us and our team who are hearing horrible stories and people like yourself who hear stories all the time on social media, everything just looks dandy and great. And they're like, you know, they'll do anything like some of these agencies like you're saying, and I remember it during COVID, you know, driving by the hospitals, everyone clapping, everyone, you know, but it looks like everyone's in it for, uh, irrespective of what you think of COVID. At the end of the day, it's like um, you see two worlds. One is social media, and a lot of times it's bullshit. And then there's real life, and they don't marry up. And um, who else is there to really blame which is not about blame but who else is there to really hold accountable except for command staff to try to effectuate change they're there now they have the opportunity to improve conditions they have you know it's their time to shine right everyone who decides that they want to promote and be part of command staff like you have a moral responsibility to your troops your workforce to do the right thing and putting out a blip on social media about how great it is knowing damn well what's going on at the agency. Um, that's not leadership. And I think if more understood in its totality, how much their leadership style or decision-making uh, what they do has a direct impact on the mental health of their workforce. And if they cared enough to do something about it, we'd be in a better place we'd be in a much better place. We're just not, we're not there. And it's kind of like, you know, a lot of us behind the scenes, people like you and me and people on my team and all the others that are, are really like looking around, like what the heck is going on? An example of, and I guess I'm more critical. I never had social media when I was on the job. So when I retired and I started seeing everything that was going on in social media trends, I'm like, what is it? What happened to our profession? If you look at Seal Beach Police Department, uh, Fontana Police Department, but Seal Beach and like what they're doing in terms of community engagement, it is unbelievable. They're 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 out there and doing things that I've never seen an agency do. And I think that if you really want to improve conditions between the community and the police department, um, we need more than just dancing cops. Um, we need more than people just screwing around. Um, acting like comedians and, and showing the realities of the job and doing it in a way that's a little bit more daring or um, real, authentic. Yeah, and I, I feel the same way as well. You know, the, the circus acts aren't going to fix it. And I think that we need to put mentorship in mental health. You know, we, we, one of the most amazing things I've seen is here in Ocala, a friend of mine, Chris Hickman, started a, a mentorship program where they removed all the barriers to entry to be a firefighter. If you can just physically get to this fire station at this time, these days a week, they will give you the equipment, the training. There were scholarships for fire school. Those fire schools were, you know, the, the candidates were being hired right out of fire school. So you 
address the diversity element, for example, in a very positive way. You reached members of the community that maybe hadn't really found a, a, an easy path to fire, police, whatever it was, a fire in this particular situation, and therefore create amazing candidates from all these walks of life. That, to me, is how we fix this issue. If our members of society, like the Give Team in, in Orlando, is another great organization, they see people of all colors and creeds helping their community and raising their young men and women up and mentoring them to become whatever you know particular career it is, then you've created that them and us. You've knocked down the fence. But a dude, you know, doing a fucking dance on a basketball court you know, or or a skateboard or whatever it is, you know, that that they're quirky and unique, but that's not the solution the same way as 22 push-ups isn't going to fix fucking mental health. Amen to that. Amen to that. There's always a new campaign. There's always a new trend. Um, and that, I guess all those would be a little bit more tolerable or acceptable if they were doing other things that actually were making a difference, you know? And it's like for us, we started with nothing with the resiliency project and I, and I, and we didn't get in it for the, for attention. We didn't, we wanted to try to make an impact on mental health because people like myself, like you, people on our team who have all been affected by suicide or whose lives have been affected by the realities of the job, wanted to try to do something different to normalize the conversation and inspire others to reach out for help or provide a third party entity that, that, they felt safe reaching out to, right? But here we are, like trying to work with others, other organizations, other people who have had have been blessed with great success and platforms. And when it comes time to really work together to effectuate change for good, for good causes, where where firefighters or police officers have been completely affected, or there has been a huge injustice. And we're, we're basically like behind the scenes, sending them things, making phone calls and asking for people to all work together because we can't do anything alone. Uh, where, where are they? Where's the Calvary? Uh, you know, and, I, and I'm sorry, this isn't meant to be negative, but it's just the reality. They're, they're still, they're still um, doing breakdowns of use of force videos or dancing, uh, being comedians. And I just wish that that term, I got your back, I got your six, you know, you're not alone. No one in this family fights alone. I wish it meant something because right now we need that to actually mean something. And people not just have it be a, uh, a punchline. Absolutely. You know? Well, speaking of solutions, because obviously this whole conversation is about highlighting issues and you know, solutions as well. So you mentioned about being in the Police Explorer program. So there is mentorship affecting your personal life. So talk to me about that. What made you decide to join that program? And then walk me through your experience as a cadet in that program and then into professional policing. Yeah, so I was, uh, you know, in a new town in Northern California when my mother was remarried. I was, I mean, remember exactly what I was upset about. I was sitting on a sidewalk outside my high school police officer rolls up and I'm, and he, I could tell he's walking by me. I'll never forget his name, Dave Porter. And then he goes, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, damn, fucking cops are about to mess with me about something like what, what, what now? Right. <laughs> and I was a little nervous. He said, uh, Hey, what's up, man? You having, you having a bad day? What's going on? 
And I just like, I remember I was emotional and he was trying to cheer me up. He watched me over to his police car. He goes, you want to see the inside of it? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I started looking at everything and I'm thinking, this is actually really cool. Um, I wanted to do other things in my profession. One of those is I wanted to be a soccer player. Well, uh, he asked me if I want to do a ride along. And this guy was actually being really cool. He really cared. And he gave me an application. I became an explorer. I'll never forget my first ride along was with him. And uh, we're rolling to a domestic violence. And he comes out of the house with the suspect, the husband who had just hit his wife uh, in handcuffs. And I saw the relief on her face when he did that. And I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to do this for the rest of my life. So every weekend I rode in a police car in high school to my own detriment. I, it wasn't popular then to be part of <laughs> the law enforcement community, right? Um, so I felt like while I was losing friends as a young kid in high school, I was gaining a family in the law enforcement profession and started learning early on about what it meant to be part of the profession. I saw the nobility of those that sacrifice and that are doing something that's bigger than themselves. And I believed in this young idealistic way, like, you know, this is a calling, right? The job chooses you kind of thing, right? And you start to basically believe that. And, you, and, and not that there's anything wrong with it, but the problem is, is that it became my identity, right? Um, but being part of something like that, especially at that age, was really good. It was, help, it was really helpful for me. Um, and I think that that's what kind of instilled uh, what the profession meant as I transitioned from doing that into becoming a police officer. Um, I, I think that there's a lot more. I think the Explorer program is great for both police and fire service, you know, getting young people involved. Um, but hopefully, I mean, not just because this is now my, my whole passion is mental health, right? Um, and to try to improve those things. But I think we should be getting them at that age and talking about mental health because I've heard of quite a few stories uh, here in California of explorers. Um, one in particular who um, thought he might uh, get kicked out of an explorer program and it becoming a huge mental health crisis then. Um, so I think um, it's an important thing, but we have to teach people to prioritize mental health and to not let this profession become your identity. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question, but. No, it does. It does indeed. And I think another opportunity to talk about mental health right from the beginning is the compassion side. So it's oh, yeah. very easy. I mean, especially in fire EMS, you know, you see compassion fatigue. I think it's a different in law enforcement because ultimately you, you kind of have to assume everyone's bad at first, you know, to avoid being murdered the moment you meet someone, you know, in a car or whatever it is. We have to be careful in fire and EMS, but it's not, you know, at the forefront every time. You're definitely cautious, but you don't expect every person you run on, on a medical call to to want to shoot you in the face. Yeah. Um, but You guys are America's heroes, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I've had some near misses, I tell you. It's, it's uh, you know, you, you take a step back and go, shit, yeah, that could have been really bad. But, um, yeah. But but on the EMS point of view, 
when you find someone who's homeless, someone who's, you know, working in the streets, someone who, you know, is an addict, what an amazing opportunity to sow that seed of compassion in the explorer level, in the fire academy level, in EMT and paramedic school level to get people to understand, like, this person didn't go to preschool going, I want to wake up to be a junkie one day, you know? No, I mean, th these things are happening. So if you can have that compassion and reverse engineer, you know, I think that's a very important skill to take with you to fight that compassion fatigue that really does kind of spread through our profession like a cancer when you got, you know, a decade or so on and you're just exhausted and you run these frequent flyers and that same kindness and compassion that put you into the uniform, you know, you lose it. And then you lose that not only for other people, but for yourself as well. Yeah. And it's such a good point, right? And to, to that and to earlier points you were making, I want to say, you know, um, I think it's important that uh, this be at least acknowledged. We, you know, I'm not talking about drug trafficking organizations or criminals like criminal enterprises that, you know, benefit off of the, the narcotic trade. I mean, I used to work narcotics, right? And I, I remember distinctly when they, when marijuana was, um, you know, we were hitting, you know, marijuana shops and I was even in school writing papers about just how evil it was and wherever you stand on that. Um, and I'm not promoting it, but what, what we do is we, we are trained and we look at people to identify who's under the influence of a controlled substance. Right. And we, we just have, a and I did it too. I was part of the problem, right? Um, but what happens is there's, there's two things. Um, one, I, I can't believe how prevalent substance abuse is in the first responder community. Um, and it's almost been culturally acceptable to, to numb out on alcohol, pills, substances, rather than actually go get help, which is a travesty. And what happens, I think, is when we start to experience addiction um, and we realize that we're, we're no different from the people we're investigating or dealing with on the street, it creates a lot of guilt and shame. Um, and the other thing I wanted to say is we were you were talking a lot about childhood and this, and I, I should have said this then, but I can't believe how prevalent childhood trauma and or childhood sexual trauma is and in the first responder profession, and I think it's, it's devastating because the more I've heard countless stories from people who have who've had childhood sexual trauma, um, when we don't prioritize our mental health or understand mindfulness or understand our signs and triggers um, that could affect us from childhood, they're responding to calls of, you know, child abuse, um, dealing with childhood predators. And they're being, without realizing it, maybe not until later, that they're being re-traumatized or triggered because they've stuffed that down and or weren't really um, cognizant of what they went through in childhood. And I've seen multiple officers who have very significantly struggled as a direct result of that. And, not, and I didn't realize how much shame and guilt that that brought on. And so I think it's important because it, it should be talked about, uh, right? I mean, we, like you said, you're a humanitarian. I mean, we, we, we are, I think, in my, where I stand now, I think we are our own worst enemies in this profession. Um, we can't point a finger 
at anyone else, if we want to change the profession and improve things, we, we have to heal from within and work together and not be afraid to, to try to be change agents, especially those who are claiming to be change agents or improve the relationship between public safety and the community. Absolutely. I don't remember the exact statistics, but the ACE score, the um, Adverse Childhood Experience Analysis that the psychology um, field does, there's an incredibly high percentage wearing uniform that have, you know, a very, very high score. And that meaning many, many, you know, adverse childhood experiences. And when you look at this profession, there's an element of the buck stops here. You know, they're trying to stop that kind of domino effect of all the trauma that they've had up to that point. And I think there's also, and this is where I think the, you see people lean into overtime and all this stuff. It's the busyness element. One of my friends, Chad, definitely had that. Um, and he was sexually abused as a, as a child and became a, it was initially in the army and then in the fire service. And, you know, it's very easy with the adrenaline and the hours that we work to just be so busy you don't have time to process those thoughts but eventually they catch up you know, as, as a mexican proverb that i quote a lot is in the book as well they try to bury us they didn't know that we were seeds and it's true like you can shove it down but eventually it's going to burst out so do you want to address that day one of a career when you're about to put the uniform and like we're going to do pt and we're going to do mental fitness as well and over this next year, you're going to have five counseling sessions with our with our counselor. And so you might have stuff that you can offload, which is beautiful. You might have nothing and you're going to have a relationship with a person when you do need them. But we're all about the tactics and the physical fitness, which even that is questionable these days. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the, the mental health side, the mental wellness, you know, it, it's it's completely brushed aside. And when we acknowledge how many, as you said, I was absolutely amazed how many people on this show alone in, in uniform or civilians have significant childhood trauma. And you think then you pick that up and you put it into the military, into the police, into the fire, into dispatch, unaddressed, exposed to all this excess trauma and organizational stress and sleep deprivation. You have created the perfect storm for some people for addiction and even suicide. Absolutely. So well, brilliantly said. 100% couldn't agree more. And it's, um, <clears throat> I feel like, you know, we typically see agencies who talk about wellness. It's usually just physical fitness, right? A lot of times it's just, but we don't like hops a lot of times or, you know, all first responders. It doesn't dispatch EMS, fire, police, corrections. Um, but we don't talk about, what the impacts are on hypervigilance. We don't talk about uh, sleep deprivation and what the brain does and what the prefrontal cortex does and what our, what our bodies and our minds do in, um, during a critical incident. Um, we don't talk about trauma, past traumas, how those past traumas impact everything moving forward and what happens when we're re-triggered and what happens with the untreated trauma, what affects you, James may not affect me. And what affects me may not affect you. But in this profession, I mean, it's very highly judgmental from the onset, from day one in the Academy. And uh, what one thing Dr. John Violante discusses is the illusion of invulnerability and what happens in the Academy as a result of our training and believing we come out kind of like with the Superman complex, even though we don't know shit. Right. Uh, but when the illusion of invulnerability 
uh, is shattered because of a traumatic event or an injury, whatever happens, it changes the lens through which we see the world and our role within it. And I think we're doing a huge disservice by not just normalizing the conversation. And, you know, it's easy to just say normalize the conversation and create pathways towards healing or, or make mental health an actual, you know, priority. But like, we've actually seen agencies do it. Ed Gephardt is a chief at Fishers, Indiana, who's already just been phenomenal creating a, a full-on holistic wellness program. And you know, as well as I do, there's these pillars of wellness, right? The physical, financial wealth, uh, or health, uh, uh, the psychological, how about the family component? I mean, there's all these different pillars, spirituality, whether you believe in God or just a higher power, something that's bigger than ourselves. Um, if we created wellness programs that really embraced each pillar of wellness, and we had systems in place where a fitness for duty wasn't going to be a career ender or, you know, always there. Um, I think we would save a lot more first responders and the ripple effects of changing our profession into one that catches up with the realities of 2022. Uh, we'd be in a much better place, but we're not, we're not there. Um, we have peer support teams that are being established because some agencies want to say that they have a peer support team, but who's on that peer support team? Can they be trusted? Is it just used for a promotional thing to say, hey, I was on a peer support team? Um, we can do better and be better. And in every point in history, we've, we've improved our weapon systems, our tactics. We've improved our you know, equipment. We've, we've, we've evolved with technology. We've evolved with our capacity to investigate, you know, sophisticated crimes, uh, but we have not evolved in the one area that is killing us the most, you know, mental health. And there's no standard, there's no standardized, um, streamlined, uh, nationally accepted either program, policies, procedures, ways, methods to, to really do this. And, and I think we all have to work together because all of us have just little niches or areas where we might be able to add value to a broader conversation. But I, and I just don't think that one person or one organization can do it alone. And I think if we all really care about our first responder community, then we all have to pitch in and do something about it. And that seems idealistic. Um, but what other option do we have? No, exactly. And I think that's what's so terrifying. You look at the stats now in fear, in fear, in fire, excuse me, maybe that's a Freudian slip, um, in, in law enforcement. And I'm sure if you broke down, you know, corrections and EMS specifically in dispatch, you might find this too, but I'm just not aware fully of the statistics. But I know in yours and my profession, suicide now is the top line of duty death. Now, again, that's excluding all the retirees that are dying from a fucking host of things, but we don't factor them in statistics because the moment you leave, you're not, you know, in that profession anymore. So they disregard you with any kind of wellness, you know, analysis whatsoever. Um, but you know, with that being the main line of duty, line of duty death, all of the work we put into, to writ and, you know, self-extrication and bailouts and fend off on roads and all these things, which are a hundred percent legitimate, but yet 
completely disregard the number one killer of, of, of police and, and fire now is, is, you know, nauseating. Like I said, when I say disregard, I'm not talking about, you know, a little target solutions video on, you know, ask for help, but I'm talking about addressing the work week, addressing, you know, some of the, the toxic organizational elements, addressing, you know, bringing in um, what's the right word? Culturally competent clinicians to actually put the right person in front of your responders. These actionable, real world things. You know, maybe paying your responders enough that they don't have to work two other jobs just to pay their mortgage. You know, things like that. Absolutely, and and you're right. We're <clears throat> high risk behavior, right? Um, inve- Over investing in the job. We avoid what's going on at home or in our personal lives, and we just keep working overtime, overtime, and then increasing the amount of exposure to critical incidents. Like the whole system has to change. Like the workers' comp system is completely broken. I mean, the precipitating events that typically cause people to at least call us for for peer support um, is the workers' comp system and the feeling of organizational betrayal, whether it's real or perceived. All of them, everyone has underlying traumas that stem back from childhood. But these are the two, I mean, organizational betrayal and what we're, what we're doing and not doing to improve the, the profession, um, it's so sickening and it's so tough to hear. Um, you're, you're, I've always been, um, I mean, we talk and, I always love our conversations and we've, I, I've always been inspired at your vulnerability, your vulnerability. Um, and I wish more were vulnerable because that's strength. We're taught in this profession that vulnerability is danger. Sure. When we're dealing with a parolee or a gang member or something like that, but rarely do we recognize that it's okay to be vulnerable amongst each other. It gives permission to the, your partner to know it's okay to not be okay. And maybe they're, they're not alone in the experience that, experiences that they're having um just in my class recently fontana um this amazing cop brought a couple of his partners to the class and this is the kind of law enforcement leader you always want to be partnered with or work with and for someone like that or some of the people at the uh, fontana pd to, to openly discuss how things have affected them uh that's being a good partner that's that's normalizing the profession that, that normalizes things significantly. When, when you tell your partners or the world that you are unaffected by things or that you're just, you're, your mind is just 100% sound and you, you're just, you're like a robot. Um, well, I don't trust that, but it certainly does a disservice to those who are around you. And so um, it's your vulnerability that's been inspiring and that's strength, that's leadership. Well, I mean, I'm just blown away by everyone else's vulnerability too. And I think that's it is, you know, it's when you surround yourself with amazing people, it rubs off on you. And so, and I'll give you an example of just interviews this last three or four weeks. I had Dan John, who's a revered strength and conditioning coach, right? The first 40 minutes with nothing to do with weightlifting. It was all about the impact of World War II in Vietnam on his family. And he was like super, super honest and vulnerable. I had Jason Earl whose expertise is mold in your home, in your fire station. Incredibly powerful and honest uh, story of overcoming addiction. I had Danny o- O'Connor, who was one of the House of Pain guys. Again, an amazing addiction story. And now he runs and owns the, um, the house that was uh, the house in the Outsiders movie. And so in Oklahoma, you know what I mean? So 
these these amazing men and women surround us, but we so many of us buy into the facade that everyone else is doing fine and you're being a pussy, so just keep it to yourself, bury it down. And sadly, that permeates up the leadership chain. There are amazing leaders that are courageous and vulnerable and honest, and that's what we need. And we saw that chicken shit pseudo leadership rear its fucking ugly head this last couple of years and we saw some great leaders and i'm not talking about politically just in organizations that stepped up you know the the advocated for their people i mean i saw such like radio silence from unions when all these vaccination mandates were going on i paid for 14 years i'm a diehard believer in the union philosophy but if you are acting like a politician within a union then you're not a union. Union means bringing people together. If you have a black union and a female union and a English Aries uh -huh. union or whatever, then for fuck's sake, that's not the word union, is it? Union is us coming together. If we've been divided to where you need a union based on your gender or your race, then we've completely fucking missed the mark. And we're not going to overcome the mental health issue if you're standing in your pigeonhole pointing at other people. Amen to that. You know, this is probably going to be very unpopular. And I don't care. I'm just the reality, okay? If we're trying to, like, eradicate past injustices or all this, why, why do we have a union that fits every color, skin color, gender? Um, like, it does why are we doing – we're only alienating subgroups uh, and, and, and races and genders. And we, we don't we, – we got – I mean, I don't know. I think to me – it is, it is going backwards. Um, we shouldn't be, it's like what MLK talks about, right? Or talked about, uh, I wish that one day I would be judged by the content of my character, not the, the color of my skin. So why do we have a black, Hispanic, you know, white, this, that union or association? It's just divisive. Um, you're talking about political courage with unions. Yes, like we need that, especially if you're going to raise your hand and run. Um, your troops are looking to you to defend them against whatever's going on in the agency. And I have seen, for example, uh, C.J. Wilkins, who was uh, the past POA president of the Azusa Police Department, who spent the last 10 years of his life standing tall, defending the troops against what was going on at the agency doing a remarkable job at what's going on. I would encourage everyone to really pay attention and see what's going on in Azusa. And uh, what has happened with the last chief, the captain, and this current interim chief is absolutely appalling. And I think when the totality of factors and the truth come out, um, I think it will be absolutely shocking to the conscious of, of everyone that listens and sees uh, what's really happening there. And now CJ has been a target himself. Uh, after he gave up being the board president, he, he's been out on injury. Uh, and he was basically told that he, as a result of really his retaliation, um, he's not allowed in the station without permission. He needs to tell people that he's uh, in the station because he's out on IOD. He, uh, has been essentially uh, a victim of total discrimination uh, and barbaric leadership. The, when we were asked to go support his officers after one was recently tragically shot 
on a traffic stop. Uh, we went there and we saw uh, things that I didn't imagine ever seeing. Uh, we saw that the interim chief tried to squash things when the captain asked CJ Wilkins to, to leave the hospital at the direction of the chief. He said, no, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to be here for my troops. And when the chief walked right up, the interim chief walked up to CJ and said, let's, let's just chalk this up to uh, growing pains and the Hispanic panic. You literally said that. And then when CJ filed a complaint to the personnel board hearing, I went and testified on his behalf and I wasn't the only witness and um, it's going to be proven. Uh, but the, it, the fact that he said that and other officers are being terminated for using similar language that doesn't even rise to that level. Uh, when we have a nation that's been calling for police reform, and you got an interim chief saying things like that and then lying about it at the personnel board hearing. Imagine the message that that sends to the troops. Look at what's going on uh, with people. I mean, this guy's life has been turned upside down. And I hope that his union is going to represent him and defend him and stand with him as he has done in the last 10 years. Um, I hope that others are going to start standing up and speaking out against the unethical leadership at their agencies. I look at what's going on at Indio. Indio is losing police officers and dispatchers left and right. Um, votes of no confidence. And a lot of these leaders are being able to act this way because not only are they not being held accountable, they're acting with impunity because the agencies or the city managers or the mayors, they don't city council. They don't want to acknowledge there's a problem. And um, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I think that a combination of these factors, a collection of these factors is what's destroying our cops. If you are paying union dues and you're not getting the represent representation because union members are, or, or people on the board are in self-preservation mode. That's cowardice. That's that you, you want to talk about betrayal. That's betrayal. Yeah, no, I agree completely. And just, I want to transition to your timeline, but just one thing that I was just told by a friend who was in a department here in central Florida. Um, one of their members had been battling an addiction problem they had been you know they'd been discovered so they you know went and asked for help and um they from what i understand were at a certain rank they you know was said hey you know i'm i'm gonna seek help I, i'm going through this now um i'm owning this i, I want to you know i want to go and get treatment for this just please don't take away my rank and um this this person was demoted and then basically went away and took their own life. Oh. So again, firstly, that in itself, we could just leave that and that would be a tragic story to, to walk away from. But also what message does that send for anyone else who's going through something? You know, so is that leadership? No. And again, this is secondhand. I do not know verbatim, but this comes from a person who I trust, who I under know understands mental health very well. And, you know, you get this, and I had this with, with one of the guys that I lost. This kind of looking down your nose, oh, did you know that they were addicted to X? You know, I mean, X meaning substance X. Um, 
knowing damn well these people drink themselves to fucking death when they get off shift and they have the audacity to talk about a DUI or an addiction to opiates or whatever it is while they fucking cry themselves or drink themselves to sleep. And that's what I don't understand is, as you said, there is so there's so many mental challenges, so much post-traumatic stress. It doesn't mean disorder, but there's stress in our professions, in our lives, and people deal with it differently. And a lot of people don't deal with it very well and then get in their ivory tower and then look down at other people that are struggling and and then they're dead and then they're, you know, fake mourning at their fucking funeral with bagpipes and folded American flags. And I've said this a lot, like we're really good at burying our people. We're fucking awful at stopping them from dying in the first place. And this is a perfect example of that. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yeah, I, I, and by the way, if, if someone is in good standing at their agency uh, and they die by suicide, which is a direct result of the cumulative stress and trauma on the job, and there's stigma that prevents people from reaching out for help, why aren't we considering that a line of duty death? Absent mitigating circumstances, why are we not allowing the family to have families to have benefits? that they would if it, they died uh, in the course of uh, the performance of their duties. Why aren't we wearing mourning badges or, or mourning ribbons on our back? Why don't we honor the fallen who died by suicide? If a psychological injury is no different than a physical injury and we can see abnormalities to the brain, which we can now see in brain scans, why are we, why are we in the dark ages? Why are, we, why are we still, you know, acting like we did back in time how why haven't we evolved what's what's and so i think that between that and everything else that's going on we got to change things i think the one thing i wanted to share if it's okay with you is the story of ben darby yeah but um, we need to make sure we hit that ben darby police officer in huntsville alabama um his wife is Keelan Darby, she is a sergeant at a neighboring agency. She is who reached out to us. In the beginning, I didn't believe that this even happened or that this was a legitimate story uh, until I actually spoke with her because it's just so unfathomable. Um, There was a gag order in this case, which is why no one's heard about it. It happened in 2018 during COVID. Um, As COVID approached, it affected the entire court case. But essentially, he goes to a suicide suicidal subject call he calls out one says i um the, the front door is open and i've got a gun and i'm going to blow my head off is what he said darby believes that he's going to a perimeter position surrounding call out there's no reason to go into the house with a suicidal subject he was just trained in this exact thing at an fbi uh school tactic school uh, class that he went to he goes on scene and he realizes that his two partners are in the doorway, in the fatal funnel, no cover, no concealment. Their they're, uh, firearms down at a low ready that, you know, so horrible, horrible tactics. He's trying to communicate with them. He's going to shoot you. Get your gun up. He realizes that his partners are vapor locked. And then he makes, and this all happens really quickly. He makes a decision to step, to go in, kind of step in front of him and take control of the scene. And that's when the subject, Mr. Parker fails to comply with orders and makes a movement with both his hands, his shoulders and the firearm. And that's when 
Darby shoots the subject to stop the threat, believing that his life and the life of his partners are in danger. And the subject dies. Later, it's determined there is someone upstairs. It's the guy's uh, fiance. He, uh, he gets charged with murder after a grand jury, um, uh, a grand jury indicts him after the DA went there to seek that indictment. This comes on the heels of the DA telling the chief that if he is fired or if he is, uh, resigns, he won't be charged. He was cleared by the department in his shooting at the shooting review board. When we're talking about leadership and people who buckle under the political pressures, you got to give a lot of credit to uh, Chief McMurray, who recently retired, who stood tall and defended him till the end, along with the mayor, the city council. Um, none of them buckled. And Ben Darby was then offered uh, to take a deal of aggravated manslaughter, no, pro no custody time, um, five years probation. He said, no, I've, I've done nothing wrong. I did my job. The first two officers, by the way, were sent back for remedial training at the academy. What happens? Uh, COVID hits. They're now in trial. It's a closed case due to COVID. So, so that's a violation of the Sixth Amendment. No one can hear what's going on. And the judge refused to allow relevant case law to include uh, uh, well, any of the case law. Uh, uh, I'm forgetting all of it, but uh, my dog is behind me panting because he needs to go outside. Bowie. He didn't, they didn't allow them to hear any of the defense witnesses. They didn't allow uh, the, the relevant case law that protects any officers and uses of force. They didn't get to hear testimony from one of the officers who said, yeah, we screwed up. I was about to use deadly force as well. It was a school board judge. This is her first criminal case she ever did. The district attorney uh, was involved in acts of misconduct like I've never really seen before. They compared him to Chauvin. By the way, it wasn't a black subject either. It was a white supremacist with white supremacy tattoos. Um, this wasn't a race thing. It was uh, sadly a political thing and what's going on. And in any event, um, he gets convicted of murder and has now been eight and a half months in Alabama's worst prison. Um, as a cop, as a police officer fighting for his life, his uh, Keelan has been out uh, here uh, and we have been trying our absolute hardest to connect her um, with a lot of different uh, people to try to get the story out there because there's been a gag order for three years on this case. Um, and sadly, uh, we don't have as many people that are willing to kind of share the story and get behind them. But I'll tell you what, um, a lot of people we know, the, uh, <laughs> the American sheriff, uh, Mark Lamb, 
who was introduced by an amazing guy, uh, Claremont here, a friend of mine, uh, stood behind them and actually, you know, comments on her stuff. And uh, that's leadership. Mark McMurray, no one's been buckling. And I believe uh, that he's going to get out and going to beat this. But the extent of pain and loss that, that they've experienced is so heartbreaking. Um, and that's just a direct result of what we're seeing, like with DAs like himself and Gascon in LA, who are not just unethical, but uh, it's evil what they're doing. It's evil. Now, tell me as well, you mentioned when we talked uh, a few weeks ago about the, what the neighbor had heard that white supremacists say regarding death by cop. Yeah, so he said that he, he hates cops and he's going to lure a cop in to kill him. Um, that guy went on record. He, they, there are statements that he's made. It, it's not made up. They've documented this. The judge didn't allow the jury to hear that. The judge didn't allow, which I get it. The cops didn't know that at the time. But when you put a lot of this, these factors together, um, why didn't the jury get to hear that they, the two, first two officers were sent back to remedial training, that they weren't within policy? Why didn't, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different things um, that, that, that make zero sense. And you've got, I don't know of a bigger miscarriage of justice than an innocent person sitting behind bars. We've never, we don't protect cops or, or, or advocate for cops or first responders that uh, are corrupt or don't deserve to wear the badge. I mean, yeah, we don't, we're not behind that kind of stuff. Right. But like we, we, we have, this is extreme. Like the pendulum now has, it's just so far off the rails. Ben Darby is an innocent cop behind bars. The attorney general of Alabama told Keelan Darby in person when they met, when this gets to my desk, I'm going to fix it. Well, he did the opposite. He sided with the court. So they're in a, they're, we're in a, they're, she is in the battle of a lifetime as an active duty sergeant trying to get her husband out of prison. And uh, he didn't belong to be there. He does not belong to be there. So I, I think, I mean, if, if anyone uh, who is listening to this could go to Stand With Darby on their Instagram um, and then you can download the media packet, the website, uh, they need legal uh, assistance with legal fees um, for legal defense. This is going to be a fight of a lifetime that they're in and we're always going to support them. And we're proud of people uh, and, and grateful for people who have been supportive of, of them like yourself. Um, you're seeing people like Mark Lamb. You're seeing uh, other organizations start to, to jump on board because they're starting to pay attention to the realities of the story. And that's, we can't ask for more than that. Now, as far as legal representation, have they got a good lawyer who is moving the needle on that so far? The lawyer is the same attorney. I think they have an, an additional attorney that's acting in an advisory capacity. Um, and they are working very hard to try to, uh, to fight this. They just responded with a motion uh, that we, it was a response to the attorney general's um, uh, brief uh, 
So theirs is going to both the attorney general and to the courts. And we're all praying that the courts decide that they're going to hear oral arguments uh, because there, there was so much case law that was applicable that was not allowed to be heard or witness testimony or other factors that all of which would have exonerated him had the jury been able to hear it. But can't blame the jury if they, you know, those are just civilians that don't understand the law and it has to be explained to them. Well, well, Ben Darby didn't have that, those rights afforded to him. Uh, they, they, they buried him and um, the, the system failed him. The system failed him like it has many others. And um, that's a direct result of the wrong district attorneys being elected into these positions. Um, we have to work together, all of us, I believe, to change these conditions because I can't tell you how many cops call us now who are not using force when they should because they don't want to become another Ben Darby and they're getting hurt and sent to the hospital because they don't want to be a political football. Or killed. And you told me about the local agency here that lost one for that very reason. Yeah, there is. Um, I'm not, um, that, as that whole thing is going to be made public by somebody else, but there's, yeah, there's a police officer, uh, God bless him, uh, sent to sensitivity training. He was sent to um, uh, unconscious bias training and all this other stuff after using force when he should have. And when he got out of two months of writing a desk and attending that training, he second-guessed himself when he shouldn't have, wasn't who he was before he got out of that training, and he was shot and killed. And um, a lot of people blame the chief and, and what's going on there. And we pray that the whole country hears that when it, make, it goes public by the, by the family. And I want to respect uh, them. and. Um, and let them put that out there as they see fit. But this is just a, another example. That people are either going to prison when they shouldn't or they're getting killed, and these lives are preventable. And it's destroying families uh, and the countless ripple effects that this has in this country. Um, this is just disgusting and disgraceful. Yeah, I've had... I had Nick on the show whose mother was killed by an Orlando sniper. He was on a few weeks ago. Um, you know, again, miscommunication took a life. Absolutely horrendous. But that was one of those true gray area accidents. I mean, just, you know, the, the dude had put, I believe, the, the hostage taker had put some of his clothes on her. She was a very light-skinned um, African-American woman. So when he came out through the sniper's lens, there wasn't the right communication of the exact description. And a shot was taken through no malice whatsoever, just horrendous. Then you have obviously uh, like Greg Kelly who had on the show who was, um, if you've seen the show Outcry, it was about him and falsely accused of molesting um, children in a daycare in a house that he was staying, ended up being the son of the, you know, the homeowner, the person who actually lived there. And again, you want to talk about terrible policing, watch that. So I've told that story on here as well. But this is the other side of the coin. And there's a guy, Brandon Coates, who was a Orange County in, in Florida, sheriff's deputy, really close to one of my crews in Station 70 in my battalion, used to come hang out and, you know, have dinner with us and, you know, grab a cup of coffee. Gets He's with, uh, I think it was B-Shift, if I'm not mistaken. Um, they get a call 
Actually, it was it was my shift. It was a shift. They get a call, or he gets a call. He leaves. Or does a traffic stop, and then the the medics, the firefighters, get a call, and they respond, and it's Brandon, and he's found dead, shot to death with his taser deployed. So if that doesn't come from the same thing, I don't know what. So there's another one that we can talk about. Brandon Coates, look it up. So that is what breaks my heart is there are absolutely abuses. And, you know, I think the Chauvin case is a good example of that. And as I've had this explained to me by great, great guests, that was handled appropriately despite all the riots and everything. He's behind bars now. He was treated the way he should have been treated. We have the gray area cases, which, again, areas like, you know, Sleep deprivation, overworks, mandatory shifts, that's never fucking discussed whatsoever. And then we have, you know, horrendous policing and or, you know, the legal side where men and women in uniform, out of uniform, whatever, are behind bars that never should have been. And what happens then is when a mistake is made, these cowards scramble to cover their tracks. And so that's probably what they're dealing with now because they know they fucked up and they're going to fight tooth and nail to keep him behind bars because that way they don't have to, you know, basically face retribution for their own mistakes. Yeah, you, you could have said it better. If we want change. If we really, you know, you see all these people that are advocating for change and trying to bridge that gap. Well, you, you got it. If you, if you really want to do that, like these are softballs. Like, let, these are softballs, like, to talk about Azusa, what's going on there, what's, what's going on with Ben Darby and the, the, the chief prosecutor, by the way, who's had his own dark past, who was a Huntsville police officer that shouldn't be at the DA's office and that DA. These are, these are softballs. What's going on at Indio? What's going on at, at San Diego? And look at John Lucas, look at Matt Degas, look at, you know, all of these cases are a direct result and uh, of, of what's going on in police agencies, district attorney's offices who are just as culpable. And there are no greater miscarriages to justice, in my opinion, than to put an innocent person behind bars or to make a political example out of someone and destroy a good first responder's career because it fits a narrative. You're not a leader if you do that just to, for, to save your own job for self-preservation because you're afraid of getting terminated by the mayor or the city manager. Now, Dan, you, you should be standing in support of and in defense of your officers or firefighters if they do the right thing are within policy and not buckle like a coward to pressures from politics and or organizations who have done nothing but call for the death of police officers, who have been responsible for death of police officers, who have been responsible for, for millions of dollars of damage that have acted with impunity. This is not being a political, uh, this isn't political coercion. This isn't being a leader. We need people to start doing the right thing. Well, I want to make sure that we cover your story. We've been talking for an hour and a half and we haven't even got to your own path. So, I would love to kind of hear, you already brought in some of the trauma that we discussed earlier. You you entered the Explorer program. You were in one agency, ended up in Orange County, which is the same county I work for, Anaheim. Um, so walk me through your journey through law enforcement and then when you started seeing issues within yourself and then ultimately where that took you. Yeah. <clears throat> Apologize for those who have heard my story and... <laughs> 
probably sick of hearing it by now, but uh, no, I, I think, you know, I work at an agency that I, I loved working for. It was busy. Uh, there was an opportunity to do all the things I got to do, but I, I recognized that dealing with all the different critical incidents, really from patrol, right? And, and everything that happened after, I started recognizing that I couldn't sleep. It all started with my inability to sleep. I didn't have coping strategies uh, that were positive. I didn't have uh, any hobbies. My identity was the badge, which is not a good thing. I was Nick the cop, not, not Nick the human being, the brother, the son, anything like that. And as my maladaptive coping strategies increased, which was uh, starting to numb out on Norco pain medication and somas after back surgeries that I got from uh, injuries on the job, uh, I started this maladaptive coping cycle of isolating, numbing out. And then after more critical incidents, uh, I um, I was able to get the job I was wanted, which is working detectives in our special investigations unit, primarily working white supremacy gangs, um, narcotics and gangs. It was my thing. And that's, I wanted to be there for the rest of my career. I didn't have any aspirations of being a chief or anything. I, I just loved doing the work. And, um, you know, I ended up this case lasted the rest of my career. Uh, it got bigger than what we could handle at our agency. We brought in outside agencies to assist in a collaborative way. Uh, but the long story short is that uh, the white supremacy organization put a green light out to kill me. I was married at the time. And after uh, about a, a year and a half of investigating this with a couple other people, the threats started getting very serious didn't feel like i was really getting the support that i needed or um, anything like that which just made me angry um but it was my fault that i ever put anything in my mouth to, to numb myself out and it got so bad you know i got i ended up getting uh, diagnosed with post-traumatic stress i was humiliated i was so embarrassed and ashamed uh, I thought I was weak and that, that I was alone in that experience. Uh, I was taking 120 Narcos, 120 Somas, and 120 Benzodiazepines. They started pre prescribing me Clonopin to deal with post-traumatic stress and sleep. And um, I became chemically dependent. And I, um, I completely spiraled. And I became something that I, I hated. I hated what I saw in the mirror. I, was just, uh, I felt like a fraud trying to hide the significant problem that I had. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, one day after uh, one of my partners and I, he actually worked at LAPD, worked on this case with me, we interviewed a Nazi lowrider who said, you better watch your back because, you know, this so-and-so is going to kill you and there's a pant plan in, in place. So uh, I, I, I just numbed out more and more. And I essentially was in a benzo coma when my ex-wife uh, was on a jog. She starts getting followed by two men. One was uh, on foot. One was in a van, both moving in tandem. And they, uh, they found us. And so uh, I snapped completely. Uh, I opened the front door. 
slammed it right away, went to go get my weapon, called the police. The world came, but this was my, this is my tipping point. My cup became too full. It was all, it was almost like all the other years of underlying trauma just kind of came to the surface. And that was the precipitating event that just, I, I snapped. We went out to DC and Virginia for about a month, month and a half. Uh, FBI stepped in. They started a conspiracy to commit murder on a police officer case. And I, we came back, the department put us in hotels uh, for another, I'd say about three weeks before I get a call from a sergeant. And he asked me, and forgive my language on the show, he says, when are you going to come back to work and stop being such a pussy? Um, so I kind of felt like that organizational betrayal, right? And uh, I stopped caring about my personal safety. I was too far gone at this point. Um, I now remember, you know, 2015 comes around and I was able to, while the case is all still going, I was asked to work a, uh, overtime shift. It was like a gang suppression shift, uh, for a few hours. I'll never forget it. Um, these are the two things in 2015 that changed my life. Uh, one was the birth of my son and I always wanted to be a father. Um, probably because it mattered so much to me because I, I didn't have the father I wanted, you know, and I wanted to be a father that I didn't have. But when he came into the world, I wasn't, I was sick. I wasn't the kind of father he deserved. Um, so that really changed uh, things. And then the second was I did that overtime shift and uh, I ended up uh, getting in a fight with the driver and he, he beat my ass really good. And uh, find out later that he was part of the decision-making process to, to issue the green light. And uh, there was supposed to be a secondary vehicle with two shooters. Never happened, uh, thankfully. And that's when the department recognized that there might be a problem. They shipped me off to a task force. And I was working uh, terrorism type of uh, investigations. And that's when the San Bernardino terrorist attack happened. And um, I think it, that affected all of us, right? I mean, even people that were, weren't there. I mean, it was, it was a tough time. And so anyway, I was, as I'm at that task force, I lose my cell phone. Uh, and when I was running out of pills, it got so bad. My, my uh, dependency on these pills got so bad that I'm running out of those 360 pills a month and two and a half to three weeks. And, um, uh, so I would drink myself to sleep. I would drink Jack Daniels. Um, I would be passed out on the couch with a puke bucket. It was disgusting and shameful. I get into the car uh, to go get a new cell phone at night. I was so far gone around 10 o'clock at night. I'm thinking Verizon is still open. And I crashed and totaled my car. And due to the level of stigma and how much I cared about what others thought, I was in the driver's seat in this total car and I wasn't thanking God that I was still alive or praying to God I didn't kill any, anyone. I, I remember distinctly thinking to myself, everyone's going to know my secret and it's over. And that's just, I was a wrong place for me to be. And I, at this point, had had already three back surgeries and a surgery on my arm from a SWAT injury. And I knew, I knew physically I was done. But when my attorney called and said, look, you're going to survive this, uh, the crash, and you know, you're not going to, You'll survive it professionally, but you're done. Like you're going to, your son needs a father. Um, I knew. So I had to, um, I put in for the medical retirement and uh, they, they retired me on my physical injuries. 
I woke up uh, two weeks after the crash, after a, uh, after a, um, just still using the benzos. And I, I woke up to an intervention in my living room. And I remember distinctly thinking like, this is a shit show. What the hell has my life, right? post-traumatic stress, my body, it's like an eight-year-old man. I just totaled the car, do why? Uh, and, but I needed to do it. I couldn't do it alone. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. And so I ended up, um, I went to treatment. It took me seven days to detox off of everything. Um, and I stayed 30 days inpatient and that, that was really critically important for me, but I'm not an alcoholic or a drug addict. I became chemically dependent from maladaptive coping. And I still don't understand why, why I was the way I was or what changes uh, occurred in me. Um, so what really started my healing journey was when I went to a trauma retreat directly after that. And I started understanding first responder trauma with, like you were talking about, culturally competent clinicians who understood the uniqueness of first responder trauma. I was there with firefighters and cops. There was only six to go through at a time. And that's where I fully immersed myself in understanding trauma and what had happened to me. And I, um, and by the way, I mean, 45% of the people that I was at that um, uh, rehab with were all cops and firefighters. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm not alone. I'm not that special. Shit. This is an actual problem around the country, you know? And um, that was so helpful. I'll never forget that. And so, yeah, I, I committed to a lifetime of healing. And so when I came back, um, from the trauma retreat, that's when my ex-wife asked for the divorce. She left with my son. That's when my family, the whole thing, you know, blew up. My, uh, my mother has tried to, you know, we've tried going back and forth, I guess, in the past few years and trying to reestablish a connection, a relationship, which um, still has not really uh, happened or been successful. And, um, you know, that's the, when my brothers were encouraging me to, to kill myself and I, that was the fight really for my life. Cause I, I, I decided, I, I mean, I'm never going backwards. I got to fight through this and I'm feeling now the physical pain, the emotional pain, and I'm not numbing out. So now I got to use and implement what I learned at the trauma retreat to stay alive, a self-care plan and understanding what the benefits are from having a self-care plan, a work-life balance and deciding that, you know, mindfulness, meditation and prayer and all the things that I was learning about how beneficial they were, I had to start doing them daily. And I've committed to it. And it hasn't been some beautiful vertical, you know, thing. It's been a complete, it's a shit show. And you, you know, then you, you know, you go, when I say go backwards, I mean, like, sometimes it was like, early on, it was like, yeah, I don't want to leave the house. I don't want to talk to anyone. I, I mean, I'm, so I was still kind of engaged in that kind of behavior where I just was isolating and too embarrassed or just, I just didn't want to engage with anyone and I wasn't healthy. So someone was able to contact the peers at the patriotic service dog foundation. And, uh, they asked me if I wanted a dog. I was like, okay, sure. They said, great. Well, we contacted the patriotic service dog foundation. I'm thinking now I'm thinking service dog, shit, this is a real shit. Now I got a service dog. Right. Um, but he helped me get out of the house and then, you know, I met the right people who like then actually took the resiliency project from an Instagram handle and helped. And it was now an organization. And since then we've been able to peer support over 600 cops around the country. And, um, 
And then I met my, the love of my life through, you know, just it, you know, all, all these good things happening. Um, not that it's been easy. It's been actually harder since all of that, because life catches up with you and past mistakes and, and all the other things um, caught up with me, but, but damn how beautiful things turned out to be best relationship with my son I could ever have. And the love of my life I'm marrying next weekend. So um, things are still, things are looking up, you know, and um, each time I get to do a podcast, especially with someone like you, I have nothing but respect and admiration for every time a department says, Hey, come, come home. We'll host a class, come teach a class. Um, It just gives me um, another, another avenue to be part of a profession I love. And um affords me the ability to give me purpose again, give me hope and purpose. And um, I'm just forever grateful to all those like yourself um, and the people on our team, um, people who uh, have other organizations uh, or platforms that use them as a driving force for good and um, are on this mission to try to improve the lives and the careers of our first responders who daily sacrifice and give all of themselves to perfect strangers and oftentimes abandon themselves in the process. And so thank you for everything that you do. And I'm very grateful. Well, and thank you, because again, honestly, I'm not just kind of rebuking the thanks. I receive it and thank you so much. But it's telling stories like this that resonate with people. I mean, you know, our earlier part of this conversation are very important and we've got two very parallel lenses, you know, from police and fire and, and being in the job and outside the job. And it's an important perspective. But I think that the the vulnerability, as we talked about earlier, and telling your story is so important. And I want to just kind of send everyone's kind of focus back to that young man that met Dave Porter, the police officer that gave a shit for a moment. And was that young man in mental crisis? Was he addicted? Was he, you know, numbing himself with benzos? No. And this is a very important thing for us to understand. And this applies to the civilian community as well. But when you look at the drill ground, military, you know, fire, police, whatever it is, corrections, more often than not, especially police and fire and military, you're going to have a parade of very fit men and women, mentally and physically. And yes, we may have some baggage that we brought in and it's important we address that. But we're very resilient at that point. We're blank canvases. Now, fast forward 10, 15 years in a lot of people's professions, physically, they're broken, they're injured, they're overweight. And then, you know, mentally, obviously, there's there's leaning into all kinds of things, whether it's social media, porn, alcohol, drugs, you know, overtime, whatever it is. And then there's the families. Oh my God, I mean, we, they don't get enough praise, but the men and women that we leave, the children that we leave to serve these strangers that then string us up in front of the fucking public after we've served a community that may not look like us, may not love like us. And now all of a sudden we're the bad guy, you know? So it's so important to look at that 14, 15 year old kid that didn't have any of this shit. Now fast forward to your colleague who's overweight, your colleague who you know, comes in the next shift smelling like alcohol, whatever. What's wrong with you is not the fucking question to ask. What happened to you? This is what we have to ask each other. And it applies outside the uniform as well. As I said, the addict, the homeless person, the prostitute, the whatever, even the fucking awful chief, even 
as you know, I heard Joe Joe Rogan had a guy, um, I think Sid Guru was the name, and he made a great point. He was Joe was talking about the pharmaceutical company and the corporations, and he's like, but even the people behind that ultimately probably have trauma in their lives that they're okay with ben- you know profiting off tobacco or whatever it is. So when you reverse engineer, it all comes back to mental health, kindness, and compassion. Absolutely. And we need more of it. And it just has to be, we've tried everything else, right? And uh, we know that resilience is critically important for survival. And every one of us enters the profession with varying degrees of resilience. And over time, our resilience depletes. And uh, it's going to take each of us, uh, all of us talking about this um, and using their organizations or platforms for, for good to, to make this really the national conversation that should be at the forefront of everything. Because that's, I think, at the end of the day, what this is about, childhood trauma, trauma that accumulates over time because of it, our, our professions. And, and at the end of the day, we lose and our families lose when this isn't made more important. So thank you. Well, speaking of the solution, and thank you again, the Resiliency Project. So you've, you've touched on it, but let's educate people on, on you know, its inception and, and what you offer to people around the country now. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. So we uh, offer peer support 24-7, free and confidential. We advocate for first responders um, when they, uh, people like Ben Darby, right? Uh, people like Matt Davis, John Lucas, others. <clears throat> and we raise money for funding for treatment and recovery services, psychological services, all in an effort to build resilience and end suicide. Whatever the treatment modality is that they need to keep them alive or to help them recover from trauma or chemical dependency, uh, we will um, raise money for those uh, individuals who contact us. And so all they have to do is go to our website, uh, theresiliencyproject.info, uh, and uh, request support through there. We have an amazing board. Uh, Charlie Gross, who's a sergeant with California uh, Corrections. Kip Curtis is our board, another board member and our director of peer support, who's a retired lieutenant with Corrections. We have Louis Giampavolo, retired major out in Florida. And we have Chris Schick, who is a police officer in New Jersey <clears throat> and also their resiliency officer um, and does a lot of stuff with unions or out there they call them PBAs. And then we have an amazing team of selfless first responders who are either active or recently retired, who are passionate about mental health, who give their time to take phone calls from other police officers, firefighters, corrections, EMT dispatchers, or their family members who are struggling. With the, with the very things that you and I have been discussing and talking about. And we feel like um, we feel blessed uh, since we've started in 2020, the glorious year of 2020, we've been able to successfully support over 600 um, uh, first responders. And the more money that we get, uh, the more we can treat. <clears throat> None of the money that we raise goes to us individually. It all goes back towards treatment for first responders. Our long-term vision and something that we will accomplish is to raise enough money to build a first of its kind campus. And on there, it will, uh, the campus will serve uh, to treat first responders for chemical dependency, for trauma. It'll have a family component, equine therapy, dogs. It's gonna have um, you know, a legal component for officers dealing with 
uh, or, or first responders dealing with, uh, you know, union stuff. It'll have uh, medical staff, uh, culturally competent clinicians that are also clinically competent and understanding how to treat first responder trauma, dialectical behavioral therapy, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, EMDR, neurofeedback. Uh, we have partners like uh, Bob Kingsbury, who owns Bud's Odyssey. And uh, we've been very blessed to have had a great relationship with him, who's doing an amazing job sending people through neurofeedback. So we just hope that we get to continue working with others because uh, there's strength in numbers and we can, we can do more to reach more. And every time, um, I guess, you know, social media has been a, a great tool because um, it gets our message out there. And so others have, have heard it and uh, through social media and people actually reach out for help through the website from hearing stories or things or messages that they can relate to. And so um, where we're at right now is um, getting ready to travel the country uh, again. It's just been a huge blessing I'm going to Washington uh, and other parts uh, to, to teach and to speak on these issues and throughout California and teaching my wellness class, which is to my, my private business. But the Resiliency Project, it will always be there 24-7. Um, for first responders or family members of first responders that need pathways towards healing. And we are confidential. We don't, or we don't, we're not, um, we don't talk to the agency about it. So it's been a, an amazing third party type of uh, opportunity for, for people who don't trust going to their department for help. And it's, um, so that's where we're at. And um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to discuss this. It's really uh the team uh, that is working together, that's making this work. Um, so that's where the credit goes. And also to my, my fiance who actually makes the whole thing <laughs> work. Cause I am an extremely disorganized individual. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> well, we talked about the website, the resiliency project.info. Talk to me about Instagram with your handles and also Ben Darby's case. Yes, thank you for that. Um, so the Resiliency Project is uh, on Instagram. It's the underscore Resiliency Project. And Darby's is stand at stand with Darby. And uh, it's been amazing seeing the growth and the amount of people who have been helping and following her. Um, she just actually went on Andy Stump's podcast which was amazing um and she's got other great opportunities coming up uh, we talk every day and uh she speaks with ben every single day and it's been amazing to see others that are advocating for them because every time someone does or every time they get a donation through uh ben is smiling in the worst conditions in the worst place in alabama but it's lifting spirits and people know that there are others in this army is growing to do more to try to help them out and hopefully we all we can do is pray for the best beautiful well keelan will be coming on friday that we're recording it but if you're listening to this episode the next episode will be keelan so we're doing these back to back thank you so much thank you for using your your platform for driving force for good um i actually just talked to her before we got on she's elated um you are a leader and our country needs you and more people like you. So thank you for what you're doing. <laughs>